The question is, you know, how many times have we heard or even seen ourselves, the Christians, our brothers and sisters, in disputes? I'm not just simply talking about having some disagreements. I mean, we cannot agree on everything, right? So we have some differences. Well, I'm not talking about just simply having a theological debate. We're talking about something more serious in nature, or we're talking about escalated tensions and frictions where there needs to be some mediation. I belong to a a presbytery in this area, and in the presbytery, uh, there are many churches that belong to that presbytery, and then at each time we meet twice a year, and oftentimes at presbytery meetings, the churches would bring up some grievances or just issues that they simply cannot resolve within the church. There are some conflicts between pastors and the elders or even just congregations split right down the middle. And so they just cannot really come to an agreement. And so sometimes they would turn to the presbytery and ask for our mediation. Just please, can you intervene and do something about this? We, can, we just cannot really come to an agreement. So for me personally, I have seen a lot of instances where the Christians could not come together and they are in disputes. And it's really heartbreaking to see brothers and sisters really really just butting heads and really more than that, really just um, insisting on getting the justice, you know, for their side. Even though we all profess the same faith, and we belong to the body of Christ, the reality is we still struggle with our sinful nature that has not been completely eradicated. We still have this sinful nature that's still remaining in us that we really struggle with. So even though we are new creation in Christ, we are really broken and we are still flawed human beings. We're The clash happens when there's ego, conflict of interest, or selfishness are are there. It's inevitable. It, It happens. And the potential for us to have issues with each other is everywhere. At any given turn, we may have clashes and disagreements and disputes. And some are more serious than others. So then what do we do when these times arise? Paul here is instructing the Corinthian church on how the judicial process should work within the church. So after discussing the topic of immorality, Paul now deals with the the problem of suing fellow Christians in secular courts. He's, uh, he's giving us instructions. And, you know, first thing that he says is, you know, if disputes require intervention, it should occur within the Christian community. And the second instruction that he gives is, it is even better to accept being wronged than to demand restitution. So, you know, when you think about these instructions that Paul gives to us and to the church, he's saying some remarkable things here in this passage. So let's uh, dive right in and see what it says. 
And the first thing, uh, the first point, the main point that I want to bring out here from this passage uh, is the authority of the church. The authority, the first point is the authority of the church. Um, How Paul deals with this immorality issue and lawsuit issue is teaching them the doctrine of the church. And um, Pastor Jay, for the last couple weeks, was talking about that too. The doctrine and the teaching, understanding of the church. Paul is not simply doing this uh, finger-wagging as a, no, 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 that's bad, that's bad. Don't do it, don't do it. That's immoral, brother. That's not bad, that's not good. Just do something about it. Oh, you guys are suing among yourselves in in, in front of the uh, unrighteous judge in the secular courts? That's not good. Don't do it. He's not simply saying those, giving instructions. You know, giving instructions of doing, this is a step one, two, three. This is what you are to do, would be taken only as a quick fix or patchwork. Unless you have a broader understanding of the church in the first place. We have to have a proper understanding of what the church is what the church should do, right? Once we have the foundation, then we can, you know, we can talk about the, the more specific steps. What good is it to tell you what not to do or what to do when you don't have a grasp of the underlying issue? It's like uh, putting some scotch tape on the walls and on the, on the floors when you see a crack. Uh-oh, I see some cracks on the, along the wall. I see some cracks on the, on the, on the, on the floor. I better just uh, do some patchwork. Let me just put some scotch tape over it. Would that solve the problem what you, when what you, have to, what you have to deal with is, you know, more, it, it is a foundation that is sinking beneath you. It does no good to put some patchwork and scotch tape on the issues when there's something more fundamental involved. So the deeper issue that Paul addresses in chapters 5 and 6 is the Corinthian church's inadequate understanding of the church. The Corinthian church didn't have adequate and right understanding of what church is. That is the root problem. The Corinthians didn't understand the authority and the identity that they have in Christ. They did not know who they they were really. They did not know the kind of authority that they had in Christ. And they did not know how capable they were in Christ. And, you know, uh, even from, uh, even before chapter 6, in uh, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, you know, Paul makes a connection between the Israelite community and the Christian community, right? Um, I think there is, a, if you can just turn to, a, so, you know, it says in verses 12, uh, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. You know, the last uh, quote there, purge the evil person among you. It comes from uh, several places in Deuteronomy where the Israel, it's talking about Israel community. 
that when they were sinning, they says, you have to deal with them within the, the body of Christ. So Paul is making the connection between Israelite, Israelite community and also the church. If the Corinthian, Corinthians understood the relationship relation between the Israelite community at that time in the, in the Old Testament and the, in the, the Christian community in the New Testament, they would realize that it was absurd for, for them to go outside the church to solve their disputes. Can you imagine that Israelites, when they were just wandering in the wilderness, they have some like, disputes among them. And instead of turning to their own kind, their own people, right? Forget Moses, forget elders, forget other leaders of the community. Hey, let's turn to a, a, a Moabite, a Canaanite who does not know God, doesn't know anything about what, who God is. Let's, let's go to them and let's settle this is, issue. Let's, let's, settle this, uh, let's resolve these disputes. How absurd would that be for the Israelites to turning to other tribes and people groups to settle disputes among Israelites. Just as Christians are not responsible to regulate the lives of non-Christians, so non-Christians have no power to discipline those in the church. In verse 2, it says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Christians will judge the world. That's the point that Paul is making. You know, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus himself says that those who follow him will sit on the, the judgment and be able to judge other people. That is the authority of the church, people. We have been given the awesome responsibility and the privilege of being able to judge the world. And Paul goes a step further in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, do you, not, uh, do, you, uh, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Whoa! He says, it's not just the people, but we are to also, we are going to be judging the angels. Talk about our authority through Christ. For many of us, I mean, how many of us will freak out if an angel suddenly appears before us right now? All of, you know, just you, for those of you guys who are watching this at home, or just all of us, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, poof, and then angel of the Lord appears before you. We will be like, whoa, whoa, it's an angel, angel Gabriel or Michael or whoever, right? Whoa, it's an angel. Wow, I'm so scared. I'm so like, this is, uh, it's really scary. It's terrifying. A lot of people in the Bible, when they first encountered angels, that was exactly the reaction. They were terrified. So usually they had to say, do not be afraid. Fear not. Right? 
a lot of encounters with angels. But Paul is saying, do you not know that we have the authority even to judge angels? Scripture tells us that through Christ, we are co-heirs in the kingdom of God. We are children of God, and that means that we have the authority to judge the world and angels through Christ. That is the authority that we have. We may be, in the eyes of the world, we are nobodies. There isn't much to look at. The only exception being Pastor Jay, right? He's the corporate lawyer. He's, you know, in the who's who in America, right? But for the rest of us, we are nobodies in the eyes of, in, in the, eyes of the world. But the thing is, we are children of the Almighty God who has included us in the inheritance, the eternal inheritance that God has. He has adopted us into the fold. And so Paul says, and so and he's making the argument, Paul says those outside the church has no standing in the church, verse 4, right? So if you have such cases, why do you, try, uh, why do you uh, lay them before those who have no standing in the church? They have no business when it comes to dealings in the church. Paul is pointing out how absurd it is for the Christians to wrangle over small cases before the unrighteous who do not know God or have any respect for the word of God. When in the end, we will participate with Christ in judging the world and angels. So, dripping with irony, Paul you know, says, right in verse 5, I say this to, shame, uh, to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Is it really truly possible that there is no one wise among you to decide on this, resolve these issues? Surely there is, he's saying. And it's really, there's, it really, he's really just being a little bit sarcastic here because the Corinthians, Corinthians, the whole time, they were boasting about how they love wisdom, how they are so wise. So Paul is saying, if you guys claim to be so wise, right, that you love wisdom, then is there truly anyone among you who is not wise enough to settle these disputes that are of small consequences? Paul views believers as fully competent to judge cases where Christians have claims against each other because they view matters. The Christians, we would view matters from a godly perspective. Though imperfect and broken vessels as we may be, there are people who walk with God. There are some of us who are really living, uh, just living according to the word, living in a spirit-filled life. And you know, when, when Paul says trivial cases, 
Here, he by no means saying, oh, you know, what you are going through is nothing, right? It's so insignificant and just get over it. What is wrong with you? That's not what he's saying. He's not trying to minimize or trivial, marginalize the cases, the disputes, the magnitude of it. But what he's saying is in comparison with their future role in the judgment of the world and of angels, judgments concerning things of this life, in comparison to that, is insignificant. Think about it. Think about whatever the, the cases you may have against each other. And think about what you will be doing when Christ comes back in glory and how we will participate in judging the world, the whole world, and the angels. So why do you take your cases to secular courts to settle the disputes? Now, having said that, Paul is not talking about legitimate role of civil authorities to judge matters that were put, uh, that God has put under them. Okay? He's not trying to just minimize that. Don't go to like, you know, the authorities or the civil courts at any case. That's not what he's saying. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Paul is not saying, hey, forget the, the, the government, period. No, 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 absolutely not. Okay? Forget whatever that they are saying. Right? Resist the authority. No, he says, you should uh, honor because God is the one who instituted the government. You know, Paul himself, he has turned to the Roman authorities when he was in trouble, right? Time and time against the mob trying to harm him, that he would just throw himself into, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, save me here, do something, right? He would go to the Roman courts, so he's not saying that ignore them completely. You know, what here, Paul is not talking about criminal cases that should be handled by the state. But he's talking about small claims or civil court, secular courts. You know, um, back in those days, most common litigation in Greek culture uh, was, um, it, it involved property disputes. Those are the most, the vast majority of the, the litigation. It was about disputes about uh, the properties. And you know, in, in this passage, in verse 7, at the, uh, verse it says, to have uh, lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Right there it says, why not rather be defrauded? Right? The word defraud implies that there was some sort of complaint concerning property or some kind of business dealings. And if this were truly the case, then the people in dispute were among the very few wealthy believers. Since the vast majority of the time in the church, people for, for that matter, did not own land or homes in those days. So when there were people that were just just wrangling over this dispute that involved property, it had to be some rich people, rich folks. In today's time, it's almost like uh, 
millionaire going against another millionaire over this McMansion. Hey, you know, this is my, my, this is my, you know, or something, right? Disputing over those kind of things. And in Paul's day, the Romans allowed the Jews to apply their own law in property. Property matters. And since Romans did not yet consider Christians as a separate class uh, from the Jews, you know, Christians at the time, no doubt, had the same rights, that they were able to settle matters within themselves when it came to property disputes. But they said, no, 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 we are taking it to the Roman authorities. And some churches may take this a little too far, and I know I've seen uh, cases where some churches try to deal with criminal cases, even like sexual abuse that, that has taken place in the church by, uh, say, a, a pastor or um, like a children, like a, the volunteer that was like, doing something uh, horribly wrong to children. Some churches, they try to just uh, kind of try to, hey, let's not take it to the Roman court. Right, uh, to, the, to the secular court, let's just settle this among ourselves. Let's hush, hush. Let's just somehow just settle it. But that is not what Paul is referring to. Referring to. Not all cases, especially when it comes to criminal cases, can be or should be handled by the church. So that's not what Paul is talking about. But the, some churches may just use this passage to say, hey, we do not go to secular court, in any possible way. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. But when it comes to disputes like that, to have lawsuits against each other in this fashion is already a defeat, Paul says, because it fundamentally compromises their witness before the watching world that is so quick to ridicule. The world is watching the Christians, the church, and when the church brings all these grievances that are against each other, fighting over some claims, bring it before the, the world, there will be ridiculing us. Well, look at these Christians. They call themselves Christians, and this is what they do, wrangling over small matters. It really compromises our witness before God. So Paul is saying, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not just simply suffer injustice? It's a remarkable question. And I think it's probably, especially in this age, it's, a little, it's uh, something that's really a difficult pill to swallow. It could be considered as really controversial. Why not suffer wrong? Because now we live in an age where we are acutely aware of injustices in this world today. Even this past week, right, the whole thing about the Ahmad Arbery, a black man, unarmed, simply jogging in, in, the, in, in, the, in the neighborhood. And then this father and son assumed that he was this um, robber, chases after him, and then with the arm, they gun him down. And for two and a half months, there was no charge. There was nothing happening because of the father who had a close connection with the district attorney. 
Somehow the, the, the video of it was leaked in the, in the social media, and then there was an uproar, outrage, and rightly so. It's just so wrong in so many different ways how this uh, case has been handled up to now. Such injustice. So for us, we demand accountability, and rightly so. But here, when Paul talks about why not just suffer wrong, once again, the context of it is, in a, is we're not talking about racism or other social ills, right? It's about in the, in the, in the context, context of disputes in properties or business dealings. Why not rather suffer wrong than just fighting over this and taking it to the secular world, a secular court? The point is, it just shows how critical the principle of Christian uh, community is for Paul. He really considers this is a matter of like witness and just the purity of the church. The point is not that Christians should be encouraged to take abuse from another Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. When he says, you know, why not just simply suffer wrong? He's not saying, oh yeah, just like let other people just take advantage of you or just continue to take abuse. Paul is not saying that we should uh, be a doormat that people can trample on and be taken advantage of. Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, let other Christians, other, others, just, ina- just, let it, just enable them. That's not what Paul is saying. Cheating and injustice should not even exist within the Christian community, community in the first place. The fact that the Christians in the church wrong and defraud shows how far they have fallen. In verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. How can this be? So in that way, Paul is saying it is better to suffer loss and bear injustice than bring disgrace upon the church by publicly exposing their misdeeds in the civil courts. Can you imagine the damage it will do, say, in a Judge Judy? Every once in a while I watch it. I mean, just, she's just so like, she can be like so mean at times, but it, it, because of it, but sometimes I, I watch that show and I just learned something about you know, the, the, the law and stuff like that. But uh, can you imagine this, the, the, the people, the defendant, uh, and you know, so the, the two parties that are there, it turns out that they go to the same church. And then they're just like fighting over something among them, some kind of property issue. So in, in front of everybody, he says, yeah, we, we go to the same church, but this is, what, this is what he has done. No, this is what you... And then they just go fighting over before people who are watching. I've heard you know, stories of churches that are... And some Korean churches, too, that they just couldn't come together so one side and the other side, they were just fighting so dis- and just like, arguing so, so uh, vehemently that they even called cops to come in so they wouldn't get into physical altercation. What kind of testimony is that when the Christians in the church cannot settle the disputes and say, you know what, 
it's, getting, it's gotten to a point where we cannot settle it. Bring in the cops. Bring in outsiders to settle this. Even at least we wouldn't just get into fist fights. What kind of testimony would that be? And Paul is saying, why not rather suffer wrong? It's injustice, but why not rather suffer wrong? Because God will one day vindicate all injustices. Just rather suffer wrong and let God deal with it. The ability for us to even, the, the, the fact that Paul is able to even give this instruction base is rests on the hope and the faith that God will in the end make everything right. There are so many injustices in the world. And us personally, we may feel like we were wronged by other people. And it, it may hurt even more if it is non, I mean, Christians. Man, I can, it may hurt, cut deeper. It's true. But why not suffer, rather suffer wrong and let God deal with it? And that is the authority of the church. So think about that. We have the authority through Christ. We are in a position to judge the world and the angels. So why not just like bring it to our fellow brothers and sisters who walk with God, who have respect, who live according to the word. Let them bring it up, uh, up to them and just, you know, let them, you know, just talk to them and somehow just settle it within the church. If you have issues, go to Pastor Jay. He knows, right? He can take care of it. Um, he's a lawyer. Um, so, um, so anyways, take out. So um, th- the first thing that, uh, the main point that Paul talks about is the, the authority of the church. And the second thing, quickly, is the identity of the church that Paul talks about here in this case. After focusing on the lawsuit matter, Paul continues his thoughts by telling them the identity of the church. Know who you are, people. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the church is a sanctified community. It's a sanctified community. Church is not just a gathering of people who happen to share common interests, a bunch of people who are just like me, or a gathering of people who know the lingo. We just kind of talk about certain things and people know what it means. It's not simply a gathering of uh, 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 people who know the lingo or who simply have the, who happen to have the similar moral values like you do. It's really all about being a decent human beings. That's why we are together. No, church is not gathering of those things because of those shared interests or moral values. But that's how some people view the church. Some people join the church because people in the church behave more or less pretty modestly. They are not really mean to other people. They're relatively nice to one another. No one curses like a drunken sailor. And overall, people are nice. So people come, okay, I, I can join this church. And or you want the, the children's ministry or the youth group to implement some good ethics for your kids. That's why you join the church. You know, actually, in fact, not here, not at Embrace in the, in the previous 
uh, churches, I've, had, uh, I've heard some of the parents saying, yeah, I, I came to this church because the kids really like the, the children's ministry. Or like, you know, I want them. I want the church because I'm really busy outside. I want the church to really just uh, implement really good moral values to my kids. I want them to have some kind of religious beliefs, some sort of things that they can fall back on. That is not the reason what the church is about. Church is not a social club where you can make some decent friends and throw in God and Jesus in your conversations here and there just so that you will not feel left out, you, so that you will not feel out of place in the church. That is not the church. The church is a community of faith called out by God, a community that is set apart for his purposes. The church may be in the world, but the church is not of the world in its nature. So when uh, Paul talks about know who you are as a church, he's um, pointing out when he says, you know, the church is a called out and sanctified community. And he also just explains how that also means that the uh, Christian community is incompatible with the world. The fact is, we are not compatible with the world. Verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, Uh, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying all these, the people, the unrighteous will not inherit the, it is not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not, we are not, we are incompatible with the world. It's like oil and water, they don't mix The church, the people of God, are incompatible with a world that rejects and rebels against God. You know, this, uh, the, 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 the sins that were listed here, they are, really, they are characterized by self-indulging and self-serving nature, and therefore, they are self-destructive. When Paul lists the examples of the unrighteous, he's not really talking about the isolated acts of the unrighteousness. But rather, he's talking about a whole way of life. When he's talking about, um, uh, do not be this neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters. So it, when he goes down the list, it's not just talking about people who just done it here and there, but it's the, the, their whole way of life that persistently defies God. I mean, if you think about it, who among us has not gossiped before? Who among us has never ever committed idolatry, putting things and people above God? Who among us has never been greedy? Right? We fall, we stumble along the way, but we cannot continue in the life of sin. There must be changes in our lives. So what Paul is talking about here is 
the people, their whole way of life, lifestyle is this. Not just here and there, but continuously being this way. The difference between non-Christians and those who truly know Christ is that when we fall, for the genuine Christians, when we fall, we turn to Christ and we repent in humility. Lord, I have sinned. You are God and I am not. It was wrong for me. It's sinful of me to do things not in accordance with your word. And say, empower me so that I may turn away from sins. That is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Because a non-Christian would say, who's God? Who cares? We repent and we live that way of life. But the non-Christians, they don't. Doesn't matter what God says. I am my own God. I do what I do, and I'm proud of it. There's no need for me to apologize or be remorseful. I am who I am. It doesn't matter what God says. For those people, they would continue to persist in sin, the way of life, whole way of life. Not just like you know stumbling, but say, "Oh God, please help me come back to you." And in verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yeah, there were some of us like that before, but no longer, not anymore. It was your way of life before you met Christ. But now that you met Christ, you are no longer like that. Yes, we fall, we stumble along the way. We are not perfect. But we repent. We recognize that what we have done is wrong. And we turn to him. Paul says, those whom God justifies, meaning declares righteous because of the death of Christ, he also sanctifies, meaning leading to a holy way of life. Paul is saying, don't you know who you are? You are washed. You are declared righteous before God through the death of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are justified and you are sanctified. Now you are made holy. So you can continue to live a life pleasing to God through repentance. He's saying your present misbehavior is an anomaly. It shouldn't be a norm. It shouldn't be a pattern in your life. It's an anomaly that must be corrected. It has to, because persistence in wickedness will be an indication that your faith is false and that you don't belong to Christ. The identity of the church is that we are people who are redeemed, who are washed by the grace and mercy of God through Christ Jesus, we were washed clean. So even though along the way, we're going to fall, we're going to sin, but we're not going to just persist in that way of life and say, forget, forget this. I'm just going to do what I want to do. doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what God calls me to do. I'm going to persist and continue in this way of life. Forget God. Then, that your faith 
no matter what you think that you may have, is false, and you don't belong to Christ. Because for those of us who truly trust Christ and know Him, will not stay in the life of sin, persist in it, but to say, God, please empower me, help me to get over and overcome the sin in my life. And when we turn to Him in repentance and humility, He will. He will give us the power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we will not be dominated by sin, but we will have the power to overcome. That is the the identity of the church. People who are washed and empowered to live the life as God has called us. So Paul is saying, when you understand the authority that you have in Christ, when you understand who you are in Christ, when you have that firm understanding, then we can really deal with these issues, such as immorality or the lawsuits among fellow brothers, which should not happen in the first place. And when it does happen, because we put our trust in Christ and God who will vindicate us, who will make all things right at his time, we are able to say, let's rather suffer wrong for now. And he will make it right in his time. May that be our approach and understanding. Let's pray. Let's uh, just uh, briefly uh, just take a moment to reflect on on the the passage. To really just think about the authority that we have in Christ. Also our identity. Who we truly are. So often we forget who we are. Because in all the frantic pace of life, and what we are going through, that we forget who we truly are and how capable we are, the authority that we have under the weight of the demands of this life. Let's go before God that we may understand what the church is, what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. So let's take a moment to uh, respond. Father, we come to you as unlikely as it seems that you, when you have adopted us as your children, that you have made us co-heirs with Christ in the eternal kingdom of God, that we have a share, we have inheritance with you. What privilege, what authority that is that even includes judging the world and the angels. Lord, you have given us so much and you have washed us. You have justified us from our deathly sins. You have sanctified us from our miserable nature. And that's who we are. Allow us to understand and realize the authority that we have in Christ. Help us to understand our identity, who we truly are, a called out community of faith that are really incompatible with the world. And you are calling us to continue to look to you, to live for you, 
and leave the life of sin, that we will not persist in it or turn a blind eye to our wickedness. So, so Lord, sanctify us. Make us be more like you each and every day. Live according to your word. And we thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.